trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. Glad you could join us. And today we are checking in once again with Eric Peters from epautos.com. One of my more right-thinking compadres. Eric, how are you today? I'm good. And I was thinking this morning as I was drinking my coffee about how my 2002 Nissan pickup isn't actually as old as I thought it was. <laughs> ah, you know, I want to talk cars with you because now, now that my move is just about complete, um, I'm actually look. I, I sold my Mustang and I'm looking to replace it. Hopefully, I can find either an SUV that can tow my trailer, or heaven forbid, the Holy Grail, I can find a good used pickup truck. But yeah. I, even it doesn't matter where I look. Cars are getting scarce. They are more expensive. Yeah. What has happened in the automotive market that's, that's causing these current market conditions? Well, a number of things, uh, including the, the rising cost of the new cars, the, the, the creep factor of all of this big brothery intrusive technology, this nannying, this jabbing you in the guts constantly to try to correct what the car thinks you're not doing properly. I think people are tiring of that. I think people want uh, simpler vehicles, less nannying vehicles. That's driving up the cost of used vehicles, as you probably know, because you're in the market for them now. It's crazy. I think the figure, um, the latest figure is that, that on average, um, used car prices have gone up by about 30% over the course of about the last two months. Now, part of that, of course, is inflation. So it's not that the vehicles themselves are increasing in value per se, it's that the value of our money is decreasing. So it takes more money to buy a vehicle now than it did a few months ago, just as it takes more money to buy a 4 by 8 sheet of OSB at Lowe's right. or some hamburger down at the supermarket. Okay, so I have to ask you, how seriously are you taking you know, the growing inflation? People are definitely noticing it. How much does it concern yep. you? Very much. In fact, um, I'm giving some thought to making some pretty significant purchases, meaning really to transfer uh, funds, paper money that I have into tangible goods, tangible assets, um, on the theory that at least I'll have something tangible, something actually that I have in my hands of value that potentially will be of use to me and which I can convert or trade uh, in lieu of money. It's very alarming to think about the rate of inflation, which is being deliberately underreported, of course, by the same press that told us all about the cases, the cases, and by the government for obvious reasons, because they don't want to want to terrify people. But it's simple math, what's complex math, and math involving very big numbers. The government and, and the, the banking cartels continue to pump this, this seemingly limitless quantity of money into the economy, and that is reducing the value of the money that is already in the economy. And I see no, no sign of that abating, and that means it's probably going to get worse, and it could potentially get really worse along the Venezuelan model, and I think that's what's got everybody on edge. No, I'm, I'm with you there. And our goal here isn't, of course, to inspire any kind of, uh, you know, fear or panic. It's, it's to be realists and recognize yeah. there is a problem, and if there was a time to take steps to, you know, to mitigate that problem, this is the time to do it because panic generally has not set in throughout the public. 
Yeah, I think so. And I think it's, it's just sound policy um, to do things like, for example, having uh, at least a month or two's worth of food stored up in your house to provide you with that not only literal but psychological cushion to know that if for, if for some reason things go, go horribly wrong or awry, that you're okay, you're not going to starve, you've got money. Uh, take care of things that need to be dealt with around your house. If you need to buy a vehicle, get a vehicle, all of these kinds of things, just to sort of protect yourself and to exert control yourself over your life rather than just stand there in a sort of a bewildered stupor hoping that these external events aren't going to affect you too badly. That's a terrifying position to be in. And, and it's also terrifying to contemplate being the person standing there with their hand out going, I need more stimulus. Please take yes, care of exactly. me. You don't want to be dependent. No, you do not, because dependency always comes with strings, and this is the kind of strings that you definitely don't want. It's one thing to be, if you're a kid, dependent on your parents. Your parents are benevolent, and you know whatever strings they are holding on you uh, are probably for your own good. But with the government, the government doesn't care about you. The government's strings are all about controlling you and degrading you and keeping you in a state of dependency to prevent you from achieving independence, because when you're independent, you don't really need the government. Let's let's talk for a moment about uh, the teenaged car. You had a great mm-hmm. article on this, and you know I I love a new car. I you know if I had my way, I'd have the money to be driving a brand new one all the time. Every year, mm-hmm. I'd be I'd be picking out something new. That's not the reality for most folks. Talk to me about what prompted this particular column. Well, uh, the latest information out is that the average car now that's out on the road. Uh, is almost a teenager. It's 12.1 years old. Oh, boy. And, uh, yeah, and that's, that's been a trend for some time. The, the age of cars has been increasing because cars are aging much more gracefully than they used to. They get old, but they don't get worn out as quickly. You and I, us middle-aged guys, we can remember when a 10- or 12-year-old car was pretty much a worn-out car. It was the car you gave to your kid when they got their driver's license because, yep. you know, hey, it's a kid. You know, if, if they break down, it's no big deal. You know, pick them up. They don't have to worry about getting to work and, and all of that. But now it's perfectly reasonable to drive to work every day in a car with 100,000-plus miles that's 10-plus years old because they run and drive just like they did when they were new. So unless you're just jonesing to have a new car for the sake of having new it's no longer an, a necessity, a practical necessity to get rid of it because it's a money pit and you need something new. The new car is the money pit, so people are hanging on to their old cars for longer and longer. Yeah, and it's not to say that those new cars don't have some pretty dang cool bells and whistles and technology sure. working with them, but I, I'm becoming more of a, a practical guy and, and you know when it comes to cars. If it works, for instance, my daily driver right now, is a 2013 Ford Focus. It's nothing mm-hmm. real crazy to look at, but it looks good, and it has been the most bulletproof car I think I've ever owned in my life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, my O2 Frontier still has its original clutch. The thing has never cost me any significant amount of money. Uh, I change the oil twice a year, and every once in a while, you know, once in a blue moon, uh, I'll change out the gear lube, the rear axle lube, put brake pads on it, but that's it. And the thing has basically been free transportation for years because, I, you know, long ago I've amortized the cost of buying it. And I don't have a monthly car payment, and the taxes on it are low. Uh, the cost to insure it is low as opposed to what I would pay if I were to go out and buy a new car. In my state, we have a very obnoxious personal property tax on vehicles that can amount to eight, nine hundred, a thousand dollars or more every year for several years until the value of the car goes down. 
um, I don't have to worry about that. And I can get just liability-only coverage on my truck because I own it, and I only have to insure against any damage I might cause to somebody else's vehicle. You also had a recent article about uh, your mobile phone, and and Mm -hmm. I thought this was an interesting juxtaposition. Um, Cars seem to be lasting longer and longer, but electronic (coughs) things like phones... You know, a couple of years, and, and it's pretty much obsolete. I'm pretty sure the phone that is downstairs at my mom's home is the same phone that was hung on that wall 50 years ago when her home was built. Absolutely. And I think that they're designing this in uh, on purpose, because precisely because the vehicles have gotten to be so durable and reliable, they're not having the turnover that they want. So now they're embedding all of this highly proprietary software and these vehicle-specific electronics into the vehicle that can be very, very expensive to replace and which most people can't replace on their own because they just don't have the technical know-how, they don't have the diagnostic tools, and and so on. And the other aspect of it that I think is very creepy, and Ford's CEO, Jim Farley, was actually talking about this openly the other day, is that they want to constantly keep your car connected to their hive mind, like your cell phone. You know how your cell phone will suddenly tell you updates are available and it will make you restart it to get updates and oh, it yeah. changes things yeah. around. I hate that. I, you know, but it's not your phone, is it? You know, if you read the EULA, the user license agreement, you're a user. You're not an owner. And that's what they want to do with the car. They want to turn the car into a cell phone that you, you nominally possess it, but the car company retains the control over the operating system, just like a cell phone and can do with the car what they want, even though you're the person making the payment on it, which brings us back to why so many people, I think, are wanting to get an old car while they still can. Yeah, yeah, I think with every passing year, Rush's Red Barchetta song has Mm -hmm. a little bit more of a ring of truth to it. Oh, heck yeah, you know, and it's one of the reasons why I take my orange Barchetta out as often as I can, that, of course, being my uh, pumpkin orange 76 Trans Am, which has absolutely no computers, no airbags, and no driver assistance technology whatsoever. Well, Eric, we're coming up against the break. When we come back mm-hmm. in the next segment, let's touch base on uh, you know the slow but steady return to sanity in uh, mm-hmm. the COVID-19 world. Uh, there was some crazy stuff took place in Georgia recently. We'll talk yeah. a little bit about that. But I think yep. we, we may actually have some good news to share with our listeners as well. Eric Peters is my guest. You can check out his website at ericpetersautos.com. If you haven't done it already, you really should. Not only are the articles extremely intelligent and informative, But uh, the comments, he has one of the best informed reading audiences I think I've ever encountered. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Our program brought to you in part today by HSLAmmo.com, pure-light.com, and MonticelloCollege.org. I have Eric Peters from EPAutos.com on the line with me. And Eric, I want to, as always, touch base with you on uh, uh, what, what appears to be a reluctant return to sanity in, in mm-hmm. most corners of the country. Talk to me mm-hmm. about some of the craziness that, that we were hearing about in Georgia yesterday over, over masking. Mm-hmm. Well, first, I think we should get into the, whole, the, the return to normalcy. I don't think it's that at all. I think it's quite pathological that, we're, what, depending on whose numbers you believe, 50 to 60-something percent of the entire population of this country has uh, 
stuck out their arm and accepted being injected with God knows what's in those needles, perfectly healthy people who stand almost no chance of being felled by the virus, but who do stand a pretty good chance of being felled by whatever's in those needles. So I, I don't think it's a, a mark of a return to sanity. I think it's a mark of defeatism, depress, depression, and herd mentality. You know, they, they, Everybody's got to do this because the herd is doing it, so I'm going to join the herd and do it too. Yeah, that. I guess I'll have to walk it back because you're right. That is yep. that is definitely not an example of of rationality. However, this is this is the encouragement that I'm seeing. Um, mm-hmm. I don't see masks very much at all. Remember how mm-hmm. you used to feel and I used to feel when we we yeah. the only unmasked people around. Now I'm seeing the percentages tip to where it's like ninety seven, ninety eight percent unmasked, and maybe one or two yep. percent running around with a mask these days. Yeah, the only downside to that is now we don't know who the crazies are. We used to know. You know, when you, when you saw somebody who was not wearing one of those things six months ago, you could pretty much assume he was one of us, uh, somebody not under the will of Landrew, somebody who was actually thinking and not being a herd creature. Now it is hard to know. You know, the people walking around without those things on their faces are probably, for, to a great extent, people who've been needled and feel safe for the moment. Uh, but wait until the fear organ starts cranking up again, and they're told that they have to do some other form of kabuki, and they'll immediately return to practicing it again. And it does make me wonder, what, what will be the next uh, mandate? You know, what are, what are they going to require of us next to show? Mm-hmm. Uh, not, not that we're following the science, not that we're doing something that actually slows the spread of a virus, but to show that obedience. Exactly right. Yeah, obedience rag is a good term for it. And now we can get into this business of what happened, I think, in Dec- Decatur, Georgia, where there was a shooting. Uh, a man apparently went into a store and was accosted by a clerk over not wearing a face mask, and the person lost it and came back in with a gun and shot the clerk to death, and there was a gun battle apparently with, with police over this. And in no way am I condoning or justifying what that man did. On the other hand, I think it's important that we do try to understand it. And I think a lot of people have been pushed and pushed to a breaking point by all of this, the whole thing. And it's profoundly dangerous. People are angry. They're anxious. They're upset. And this needs to be dialed back unless we want the country to spin into, into some kind of a Mad Maxian chaotic uh, hell-on-earth scenario. And I don't think any reasonable, compassionate person wants that to happen. No, and and to to look at uh, you know the reasons why do people twist off like this? That's not justifying it by any stretch, mm-hmm. but uh, but we should be asking, you know, how how long can people be pushed into a corner? How long can they be browbeaten before someone reaches the breaking point? Well, and consider this with regard to the the needling. I uh, am in communication with lots of people all over the country, including a number of people who have children and who said that their line in the sand is having their kids shot up with what's ever in those needles, and that they will do whatever is necessary to protect their kids from being injected with what's ever in those needles. So this, this scenario is, is playing out where people are going to be backed into a corner and given the choice of having their children, their wives, their husbands, whomever, forcibly injected with one of these things, or uh, do something to prevent it. You know, and that's that's an ugly thing. I, I I don't have a problem with vaccines per se, just as I don't have a problem with electric cars per se. People who want electric cars, hey, go out and buy one if you want one. You want a vaccine, go out and get it if you want to. It should be your choice to do pretty much anything in this life according to my own libertarian principles. But I draw the line at forcing other people to buy into it as well. 
And there's some interesting ways that that force is being applied. I know uh, your article, The Cost of the Jabs, points out yeah. how you know health insurance and, and car insurance are good examples of how public behavior can be molded through non-governmental coercion. Absolutely. Uh, that, I think, is um, an aspect of this whole vaccine thing that's not being discussed enough. There are all sorts of and I hate to use the conspiracy, the term conspiracy theory, because it's just it's so worn out and overused, and it serves as a way to delegitimize any question before it's even asked. However, uh, you know whether the vaccine is something that's designed to sterilize or depopulate the population, I don't know. However, I do know that the object of this exercise is ultimately money. You know, if they can make everybody get a vaccine, if they can force everybody to get vaccinated as a condition of being employed, as a condition of being permitted to travel by air, even as a condition of being able to go shopping, uh, you know, it's not going to be just this vaccine. It's going to be ongoing. Each year, you're going to have to buy your vaccine or pay for it through your health insurance that you're also forced to, to buy. And people should stop and think about it. the fact that health insurance is titanically expensive and why is it that way because everybody's forced to buy it just like car insurance when you can't say no to something you have lost any power you used to have to uh to pressure the person who's trying to sell you something to lower their price well that's a that's a great point and and it's it's curious too how it's creating that two-tiered society you know, there's mm-hmm. one set of rules and, and privilege and, and standard of living for the vaccinated and another, mm-hmm. you know, for the unclean. I'm sorry, the unvaccinated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that, you know, that, that's beyond the economics. That gets into the, the politics and worse. It is, it is a very scary development to pariahize, to marginalize any segment of the population as a cudgel to try to uh, coerce them into into doing something and to empower the people who are not in the prior class to regard the prior class as sort of an untouchable cast of, of of people that you can you can mock you can belittle you don't have to deal with them uh, you know where does that lead what what is the dark alley that we're headed down when we start doing that as a country I know that uh, people get a little bit testy when when uh, people bring up for instance examples of the the Chinese Cultural Revolution under Mao. But having read a couple of books written by people who survived that cultural revolution, some of the some of the aspects of their story, some of the attitudes, like you're just describing, where there are some people that you can absolutely mock and beat and victimize mm-hmm. and call out with impunity, that's part and parcel of a very totalitarian mindset taking hold. Well, sure, if the shoe fits. And, you know, people... People think that it all happens at once. It doesn't. I'm sure you're familiar with the broken window theory of crime. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, if, if you allow that sort of thing to begin, if you allow people to throw trash around, to behave obnoxiously in public, to accost pedestrians, uh, to smash windows, to shoplift with impunity, it accelerates. And then you start getting knifings, and you get muggings, and you get murders. And that's how, you, how it happens in a totalitarian country. You don't get the Third Reich overnight. You get it piecemeal, and then all of a sudden you're living in it. So it's important to stop it before it becomes the Third Reich. And, and to me, the kicker is, guys like you and I, we don't want to go around, you know, goose-stepping and imposing our will on everybody else. What we ask is just the basic human decency of, leave me alone. 
Let me pursue yeah. happiness peaceably. You pursue happiness peaceably in your way. And, you know, we just have that mutual respect for each other. But yeah, is that it. such a big ask? You know, I, I marvel at this. I, I don't have any particular issue with somebody who wants to wear a mask or gloves or even a plexiglass face shield on top of it. Whatever floats your boat, do it. If, you know, if that if, if that's works for you, hey, that doesn't impose anything upon me. So I'm content to let you go ahead and do it. And by the same token, why can't you let me go about my business? I'm not hurting you. You're not hurting me. That used to be the American way, and I think we've lost sight of that. Amen. Eric, we're up against the break here. Tell mm-hmm. folks about where they can find your website. Sure. It's epautos.com. And if you just type in my name, it'll come up. And pretty easy to find. And uh, if anybody out there listening to this has a question they'd like to ask, just hit the button. I'll be happy to try to answer it. Great to visit with you as always, Eric. Here's to next week. You bet. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. So we're all kind of getting a... Well, we're getting a a taste of critical race theory, whether you want it or not. I mean, there are those who say, well, it's not, it's really, it's not even happening. I don't know why you guys are concerned about it. But hey, there's a pretty, uh, pretty decided push, at least by uh, folks who want to engineer the public consciousness to convince us that everything, everything that came before us is or was racist Everybody is or was racist, unless, of course, you agree with them. If you're marching in lockstep, well, then you're probably okay. But if not, I don't know. It's, I, I know I'm, I'm stereotyping a little bit when I say this, but to me, critical race theory looks an awful lot like a racist solution in the sense that it's, it's focused entirely on people's skin color and then assigns attributes and and qualities to them, not based on individual character, but just based on skin color. So to me, it looks a lot like a racist solution in search of a problem. And if it can't find one, well, then it's going to create one. It's ugly stuff. And it's, it's just another example of the ugliness of collectivism, where people are lumped into the collective, or they're identified by this group or that group. It's a loser's game. Because the only determination, if, if, we, if you have to classify people, really the only reasonable classification that we should or you know, could make about other people, and it's on an individual basis, is, is this a decent person or an indecent person? And their behavior is what's going to tell you the answer to that question. Not their skin color, not their heritage, but how they act, what their actual behavior is is showing. Now, the problem here is there are a lot of people standing up and I think rightly concerned. They don't want their kids being brainwashed into, you know, they don't want their kids sitting in a classroom as a captive audience. Come on, we've already seen identity politics worm its way into the educational system. If you don't believe that, just uh, try to keep up with any of the alphabet uh, causes that, you know, are now very, very common and mainstream within public education. Well, this is just another facet of identity politics. That's what critical race theory is. 
But the problem is, a lot of folks are saying, well, we need to ban its teaching in public schools. On the one hand, I agree, it's not something public schools should be teaching, but here's the danger. When you start saying, hey, we should have government enact some kind of policy or law that bans this idea or the teaching of that idea, you can try to dress it up as we're just trying to protect the kids, but it still amounts to censorship. And so that leads us to a place where we have a couple of different decisions. Now, this is going to sound like a harsh thing to say, and I say this with the understanding. I have two kids who still attend public school. I have a wife who is a public school teacher. But if you are concerned about what is creeping into the curriculum in public school, as a parent, get your kids out. I understand that's easier said than done. But I've also met an awful lot of parents over the years who said, I'm not going to subject my kids to the mind laundering that's going on inside that building. And sometimes at great personal sacrifice, they've pulled their kids out and either homeschooled them or they've sent them to private schools or charter schools. There are alternatives. And especially after, you know, all the Zoom classrooms of last year, we we have more alternatives and more people have been introduced to alternatives than they knew existed before. The only people this is really upsetting to, I think, and and I'm sorry, but I'm going to cast a broad net here, are the people who view public school as a kind of de facto daycare. Well, schools are going to take care of the kids and watch them while the missus and I go off and earn a living. I understand. That's a reality for a lot of people. But I want to, I want to point you toward an article by Scott Shackelford. This is from, or Scott Shackford, rather. Uh, he is with Reason.com, and his article is Don't Ban Critical Race Theory in Education. Embrace School Choice Instead. In a nutshell, he's making the case that it's wrong for politicians to suppress important debates in schools. Instead, let families have more control of their kids' education. Now, I understand that's a hard sell for people because, hey, but they're trying to, people are trying to get this into the curriculum. They're trying to teach it to the kids right now. I get that. And I think he gets that. But I think he's also taking a statesmanly approach to don't ask government to solve a problem for you unless you want other unintended consequences to follow. And, and since you're calling on this for censorship, yeah, it could, it could be a problem. He says conservatives in Florida, Idaho, and the nation's capital are attempting to block public schools from teaching critical race theory, an ideology that holds that racism is historically fundamental to how America's political, legal, and cultural institutions are structured. Now, he says it's an authoritarian proposal that would cut off classroom debate about hot-button political issues. Rather than rejecting the idea of forcing students to learn controversial concepts as though they're facts, it just picks a different side of the controversy and pushes that one instead. I know, this makes me uncomfortable too, but I still think he's right. I don't want my kids being taught this garbage. I don't want them being taught collectivist identity politics, but he has a point. I don't want them to be force-fed what I think is the correct point of view either. He says the proposals tend to be terribly written. In fact, here's what Florida State Board of Education passed unanimously last Thursday. Quote, instruction on the required topics must be factual and objective and may not suppress or distort historical events, such as the Holocaust, slavery, the Civil War and Reconstruction, the Civil Rights Movement, and the contributions of women, African American, and Hispanic people to our country, as already provided in Section 103-42, Subsection 2. 
FS examples of theories that distort historical events and are inconsistent with state board-approved standards include the denial or minimization of the Holocaust and the teaching of critical race theory, meaning the theory that racism is not merely the product of prejudice, but that racism is embedded in American society and its legal systems in order to uphold the supremacy of white persons. Instruction may not utilize material from the 1619 Project and may not define American history as something other than the creation of a new nation based largely on universal principles stated in the Declaration of Independence. Instruction must include the U.S. Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and subsequent amendments. End quote. Now, this amendment also forbids educators from sharing their personal views at all during class discussions. Now, he says a lot of honestly misguided ideas have come out of critical race theory. Its exponents, for example, have pushed the idea the First Amendment should not protect hate speech. But the notion that embedded racism has played a major role in America's institutional history should not itself be controversial. Florida's new rule defines critical race theory as claiming racism is embedded in American society and its legal systems in order to uphold the supremacy of white persons. Now, would this cover the idea that America's past is full of obvious examples of institutionally embedded racism? Now, I want you to unpack what he's saying here. I don't think he's saying, therefore, everything that came before us was racist. But I think we can can honestly admit people had different views on race in the past. And those views have evolved. The thing is, what we consider distasteful, right? The, the whole, well, we got to separate ourselves from them because they're not as good as us or somehow they're even less than us, maybe less than human. That is coming out full on in critical race theory. It's just the shoe is being put on the other foot and we're expected to believe, well, that's fair. <laughs> but the problem, he says, is a teacher might argue that the language doesn't cover that, but it's close enough that it could have a chilling effect. And he says the results would be untenably absurd. Students would learn slavery was a result of simple prejudice against black people, not an entrenched political and economic system. And I know this is hard. And it, it, it pains me to admit this too. But even in our beloved Constitution, slavery was codified. It was upheld as, yes, that's a legal thing. A great warning that what is legal may not necessarily be moral or right. Moving on, um, Scott Shackford goes on to say, look, he says, better to let families decide for themselves. For instance, Florida has a pretty good record of supporting school choice. The school currently has 687 charter schools serving more than 340,000 students. And school choice is the ideal way to address those concerns, certainly better than either a mandate or a ban. Letting families choose which schools their children attend means letting them decide what curricula those children will encounter without either side of this culture war getting a veto over the choice. I do believe that is the better way to go. And parents, if, if you can't find a school that uh, can, can steer clear of what's woke and what's you know politically correct in these times, the choice may be you've got to pull your kids out of that school system. You've got to rescue them. But above all, it should be your choice. Whose kids are they? Well, they're yours, obviously. 
So let's not outsource this responsibility. Hey, government, you become the arbiter of what can and cannot be said to our kids and what can and cannot be taught to them. And let's make it mandatory. Let's make it stick with force. No. How about government? You back off. Parents, you get to choose. And whoever wants to push an agenda, well, they've got to convince people in the court of public opinion, not a captive audience. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. I've got two quick articles I want to touch on in this uh, closing segment here. And I know this one is probably the one that's going to cause the most heartburn, so let's get it over with. This is like ripping off the Band-Aid, <laughs> but I think we should probably do it. It's an article by Brian McClitchy. I saw that, or M- McGlinchy, rather. I saw this on LewRockwell.com today. Uh, yesterday was Flag Day. I don't know if you noticed. There were lots of flags flying. It's, it's, it's a great holiday. Uh, Independence Day is approaching. So patriotism is going to be in fashion, you know, at least at least for the short term. We're going to see, you know, uh, we're going to see more and more people boldly and proudly expressing their patriotism. And in this case, Brian McGlinchey says, hey, this is there's no better time for a full frontal assault on a cherished American ritual. And that is the Pledge of Allegiance. In fact, he says patriots shouldn't pledge allegiance. Now, I know that sounds subversive, right? He says, though most, he says, though conservatives will be most aghast at this undertaking, he says the open-minded ones will soon discover they should be among the Pledge of Allegiance's greatest critics. But he says, before I open fire, here's a brief explanation for international readers. The Pledge of Allegiance is recited by children across America at the start of each school day. It's also incorporated into many meetings held by federal, state, and local governments and private groups as well. Standing and facing the flag with hand over heart, one recites, I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation under God, indivisible with liberty and justice for all. Now he says, many who consider the pledge a cornerstone of conservative values will be surprised to learn that it was written by a Christian socialist by the name of Francis Bellamy who was run out of his pulpit at a Boston church for preaching against capitalism and who called Jesus Christ a socialist. By the way, if you want to see a thorough dismantling of the idea of was Jesus a socialist, Lawrence W. Reed from the Foundation for Economic Education answers that question decisively. Back to the Pledge of Allegiance, though. Bellamy's radical cousin, Edward Bellamy, wrote a popular novel called Looking Backward, which glowingly describes a future in which government controls the means of production and where men are conscripted into the country's industrial army and compelled to work in roles assigned to them by central planners. While working for the Youth's Companion, a children's magazine, Bellamy wrote the Pledge of Allegiance in 1892, time to be introduced in patriotic celebrations accompanying the 400th anniversary of Columbus's arrival. According to a summary of Bellamy's account of his writing of the pledge, he aimed for brevity as well as a rhythmic roll of sound so they would impress the children and have a lasting meaning when they become grown-up citizens. Now, given his beliefs, Bellamy was well-suited for creating a loyalty oath that conditions Americans to subordinate themselves to a powerful central government. 
And he says, make no mistake, in pledging allegiance to the republic, Americans are doing precisely that. That's consistent with Bellamy's wish for state sovereignty and individual liberties to yield to the centralized national government. But it's starkly at odd, at odds rather with the founding spirit of the country. Central to that spirit are the notions that government should be a servant, not a master, and that all government should be viewed with deep, ongoing wariness, certainly not the reverence demanded by the Pledge of Allegiance. Bottom line is, he says, free people have no business pledging loyalty to any government. It's government that has a duty of loyalty to the people, with no more essential demonstration of that loyalty than the protection of the rights of individuals. Now, I'll have a link in the show notes at thebrianhideshow.com. You can read the rest of this article. It's on lewrockwell.com, one of my favorite resources for wrong thinkers. I'm not saying you have to reject the flag or reject the Pledge of Allegiance. But like Brian McGlinchey, I'm going to suggest we would all be wise to at least give some deeper thought to why exactly are we pledging allegiance? Why exactly? What does it represent? Are we just doing it in rote because everybody else is and we've been programmed to do so? Maybe we should put some thought into it. And I think people who do that may find they don't know for sure if they can continue on with that pledge. It doesn't mean they hate America. It just means they've given serious thought to what they're saying and why. All right. Last thing here. Uh, You know, the word hero has been co-opted by the state. I don't know if you've noticed how many movie and TV heroes are always somehow in the employment of the government. He's a CIA agent. He's a cop. He's, you know, whatever, a lawyer, a, a prosecutor. Paul Rosenberg says, more than ever, we need to praise great individuals. And that's not synonymous with somebody who works for government or who puts on a uniform and shows up for work. Examples of personal greatness, he says, inspire greatness in the rest of us. And he makes a very powerful case. If you're not seeing heroes around you, maybe it's time to become one. Paul Rosenberg says our Western civilization, until its recent decline, consistently praised great men. That was not only one of its great strengths, but also one of its great virtues. To praise a great man or woman is to remind yourself of many things. First of all, that greatness is possible. Secondly, that change and improvement are possible. Also, that the individual is more important than the collective. That virtues are not only abstract, but can be held in actual life, including under contrary circumstances. And that even in bad circumstances, the good can still succeed. That virtues can be grown. That endurance matters. Paul Rosenberg says these things and others like them are crucially important for people to see. And by championing the virtues of another, we are led to partake in them, first in spirit and then in body. Once people see the virtues of others and praise them, they easily enough come to see that they are possible to themselves as well, leading them to noble goals of their own. By this, praising others ends up improving the world greatly. Now, if on the other hand we believe that greatness is all fraud and illusion, well, we decline into entropy and we surrender ourselves to a nearly impotent mode of life. Great men and women, then, are necessary because great men and women give rise to thousands and millions of good men and women. And the proper measure of a civilization is how well it produces good men and women, not political supremacy and not mere creature comforts. Holy cow, there is wisdom in that statement. 
He says, I won't go through the reasons why great men have been evicted from Western civilization. It doesn't particularly help us to move forward. And he says, I've explained it in the past anyway. What matters is that we see the scope of this eviction and that we start doing something to reverse it. And as for the scope, he says, I like this example. In the 19th century, streets were named almost exclusively after great men. By the 20th century, that had changed over to streets being named for anything but great men. They were named after hills, trees, ponds, brooks, some animal or some geographic feature. The only time streets are named after people these days is when they get honorary names for base political purposes. Rosenberg says, ever since I was a boy, the easy path to literary prominence has been to tear down some great man or woman. He says, heroes, save for those of fantasies and those with political value, have been torn down for fun and profit. Western civilization has been stripped of actual heroes, and it has denuded the culture. But he says, heroes are required if we're to have a thriving civilization. People contending otherwise are either ignorant or have bought into the man may not be a glorious creature in mythology. Can heroes be followed too hard? Well, sure. Heroes can turn into idols, and probably no writer has addressed that more seriously over the past years than he has. But to pretend that great men and great women, of course, are unnecessary and even impossible, that's flatly false. The real good of human life comes from no one but heroes. And he says it's, it's of interest that the heroes of Western civilization always tended to be moral heroes. The various political rulers have always tried to make themselves into heroes, but it seldom stuck very well. Jesus has always been the central hero, and he was anything but a great warlord. Likewise, St. Peter, St. Paul, and all the rest, the original stories that formed Western civilization were theirs, and they were anything but high and mighty. He says the heroes of the West were men and women who grasped what was good and true and held to it regardless of opposition. They triumphed because of their devotion to what was right. And this was the case for scientists, entrepreneurs, fathers, mothers, and more or less all Western heroes. The new ideal of Western civilization turned the ancient political ethic that might makes right on its head, championing stories of exactly the opposite type of might making right. Even to this day, if you want to deceive Westerners and turn them into your tools, you have to maintain a cover story that following your prescription, the good and right thing to do. He says if we want our heroes back... We have to start acting rather than sitting passively. That is, we need to force heroes back into the world. Those of us who write must create clear and good heroes. Not the usual flawed heroes. Those of us who sing can sing a better class of heroic songs. Those of us with means can finance heroic films and other entertainments. And of course, we can start naming streets after great men and women, even if it's only in our own little areas. But what we need most is to act And he says, the size of our action isn't terribly important. Breaking stasis is. There's a link to this in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. This is The Brian Hyde Show.